kindly open your Bibles to John chapter 8. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Four accounts of one gospel. His name is Jesus. John chapter 8. We are picking up this morning in verse 39. Um, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the verses leading up to that. If you're new here, we do expository preaching. We go through books of the Bible. Um, expository doesn't mean just going through books. It means we're expositing and drawing out the meaning of the text. So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to spend some time this morning um, looking um, deeply into the text because we're going to be looking at Abraham. It's very important we understand who Abraham is and what Jesus is trying to say about Abraham so we can apply it to our lives. So we're going to spend some time and we're going to be looking at um, Abraham again next week as well and Moses. So let me, let's hear God's word together. Um, I'll read, you listen, Math, uh, John chapter 8, verse 39, reading from the ESV. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth. That I heard it from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I come from God and I am here. I come not on my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. And does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me? Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not from God. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy word this morning. So children, you're dismissed for Children's Church. The rest of us are in John 8. Looking at that small portion of Scripture, i got to tell you, I, I, you know, looking at chapter 8, I had broken up into like two pieces. <laughs> We're in the fourth sermon on John 8, and there's one more next week. You know, whenever you think you can just jump in and take a big portion of Scripture, and then you see the beauty and the glory and, and the... And, the spiritual truth, the table of food that's been laid out before us, I've just got to like slow down. So we're just going to look at that scripture this morning. We'll finish up chapter 8 next week. You know, Jesus said he's the bread of life, right? By coming to him, believing him, trusting him, relying on him, one can be satisfied. There's so much food here. If you remember, here in our text in chapter 8, we find a crowd that had gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. Jesus had already, over the past few weeks we saw, revealed himself as the true and better living water that satisfies a thirsty soul. He reveals himself as, he already revealed himself as the true and living, true and better light. Light of the world, he says. I'm the light of the world that provides ultimate illumination in this dark world. Both of those realities is part of what the rituals that were performed in the Feast of Tabernacles, the, the breaking of the rock and the water flowing that Moses back in the, and while they wandered in the desert, they, they celebrated that in the Feast of Tabernacles. And Jesus says, I am the living water. I provide for you. Lighting of the, the illuminating of the temple. We saw that as, as God illumined for them as they were walking in the desert for 40 years with a pillar of light, a pillar of cloud. And Jesus says, no, I'm that ultimate light. Last week, Pastor Ricky did a great job, showed us that Jesus revealed himself as the liberator from bondage to sin. Just like those who are trying to find satisfaction, not in the bread of life or the, or, or the, uh, the living water, we find in our text this morning that there are some who don't want to hear that they're in bondage to sin, and they're, they're looking for ways to escape that truth, that they are, it truly are in bondage of sin. And maybe it's the first time, maybe last week or maybe this week, it's the first time you've heard that you and I, without Christ, all together, are living in bondage and slavery to sin. Look at your Bibles, chapter 8, verse 28. Jesus explains to religious leaders that unless they believe that he is, or I am, pointing back to Moses and God introducing himself to Moses, unless you believe that I am God in the flesh, 
and would be lifted up, crucified for sinners, you would die in your sins. To die in your sins means to die eternally without Christ, without forgiveness, separated from the love and the presence of God in, in, in a place the Bible calls hell. And then in verse 30, it says that Jesus said to them in verse 30, and he was saying these things, many believed in him. You're trapped in sin, you're enslaved to sin. Unless you believe that I am he, you're going to die in your sins. And it says many people believed in him. Now Ricky mentioned this last week. Underline that because we've already seen in the gospel account of John that in chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 6, John is pointing out that some people say that, confess it with their mouths, but they don't believe it. They're, they're fickle faith. They have spurious faith. They're not genuine believers. And I say that because look at verse 31. All right, you believe what I say about who I am. In verse 31, it says this, as if Jesus is saying, really, do you believe? And Jesus said to the Jews who had believed, from verse 30, those who believed, if you, if you abide in my word, you then are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and that truth that you know by abiding in me and my word will set you free. So I think what we have in our context is a mixed crowd, probably something like here. Genuine believers who love the Lord Jesus. There are those who are make-believers who are just playing church and there are those maybe who are dragged here and don't want nothing to do with God. Jesus, in our text this morning, is separating those spurious faith from those who have genuine faith, fickle disciples from authentic disciples. To abide, he says, you abide in my word, means to remain, to continue, to hold on to the word of Christ. And that is proof positive that you truly belong to Jesus. Ricky was right last week, and I quote, abiding in Christ is the evidence of salvation, not a prerequisite of salvation. So we're saved by grace alone, and that same grace, as the song says, will lead us home. By the grace of God, genuine believers will preserve to the end. Those entrapped in sin can only be free, Jesus tells us, in the Son and the truth of the gospel. By grace, we are set free by Jesus, the Son, giving us entry into his family. And evidence of that freedom is exhibited by following and obeying and abiding in the word. And the religious leaders took offense to that claiming that they are not in bondage to sin. Look at, you, look at the Bible again. Jesus says in verse 33, they answered to him, really, we're offspring of Abraham. What does it mean that we're, we're not free? We're offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. How is that you say you will, you will become free? Jesus answered in verse 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, the word practice, or maybe your Bible has commits, is in a present tense referring to a continuous action. Anyone who continuously in their actions sins is a slave to sin. Now, when I read that, maybe you can relate to me, I'm thinking to myself, I sin every day. Motive, deed, I mean, there's not a day go by that I don't sin. And if you don't, can't relate to that, talk to the person next to you. They'll tell you. I'm thinking that's pretty continuous every day. Lose every day you go without sinning? No, I do not sin when I'm sleeping, but I don't think that counts. So every day I sin. Now that sounds pretty continuous. What is, what is Jesus saying? That's not what he's saying. What he's saying here is those who are enslaved to sin are those who have the mindset, the affection, the attitude of disregard for God's word, his laws, and his precepts. You know, I know that John, the same author who wrote this gospel account, writes this in 1 John, uh, 1, 1 John 3, 4. Everyone who practice, everyone who makes a practice, same word, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices, listen, lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So slaves to sin are those who are, are living in or those who live in habitual, persistent, relentless practice of sin with an attitude of lawlessness. Now, when you think of lawlessness, please don't think murderers and bank robbers. Lawlessness is a disregard for God. John Piper writes, A true child of God cannot and does not go on sinning in a way that would correspond without seeing it as sin. Hating it as sin, confessing it as sin, and fighting it as sin, end quote. Freedom from slavery of sin 
will actually manifest itself, listen, will manifest itself by being convicted by the sin, having conflict over the sin, confessing it as sin. All of that which the religious leaders and the people that gather around Jesus lacked. When you truly come to faith in Christ and you're a disciple of his, it gives you new heart, new desires. The Spirit of God takes up residence. And the first time when you're really off free for the opportunity to say no to self and yes to Jesus, no to sin, no, say yes to Jesus. Change of, of life, a change of direction. Now I want you to catch this. Freedom in Christ, set free by the Son, means the immediate freedom from the penalty of sin. Jesus paid the price. Freedom of Christ means that we are free, being freed from the power of sin in our life. We're growing to be more like Jesus. Freedom of Christ someday means that we will be completely free from the presence of sin in our new bodies, glorified and prepared for the new heavens and the new earth. We're freed now from the penalty. Jesus paid the penalty. We're being freed from the power as we walk in holiness and say yes to Jesus. We're freed and guaranteed in the future from the presence of sin. New heavens and new earth. And that true freedom comes from knowing Christ through genuine faith, abiding in his word. We'll talk more about today, uh, about that later on in our text, okay? I just want to lay down. Now, I want to give you a heads up. Here's our, here's our outline, if you're taking an outline, okay? It's under three headings. We are going to spend most of our time, so don't freak out on me, number one. We'll hit number two and number three. We'll go a little bit faster. But I want to spend some time on descendants because we're going to talk about Abraham. I'm going to get everybody set for that because it's important today and it's important next week. So descendants and doctrine, this is what they're trying. The religious leaders in the crowd are saying we're not in slavery to sin because descendants, our pure doctrine, the desires in their deception, divinity, and division. So that's going to be our outline. So let's see what they have to say. Look in your Bibles. Our very verse, first verse is chapter 39. Is verse um, 39, chapter 8. They answered him, Abraham is our father. That's a repeat. Look up at verse 33. We, he says, are offspring of Abraham. So it seems to be keep coming up. You're a slave to sin. Anyone who practices a slave to sin, you've got to be free only if the sun sets you free. Well, we're, we're children of Abraham. We're not enslaved to anyone. Look at verse 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now look, verse 35. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son there remains. Verse 36. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are, look, offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. You see, Jesus is anticipating, they're they're coming back to Abraham, they're coming back to Abraham. And he says, the only way you can be free is through the Son. Not through your descendants, not through Abraham, it's through the Son. When the Son sets you free, you are free because he has brought you into the household of God. And Jesus says to them, if you were Abraham's children though, verse 39, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. Okay, I want you to see that contrast. They're trusting in their descendants. Jesus pointing to the son. Jesus saying only the son can set you free. You're not in the household of God. And they say, yes, we are because Abraham is our father. Notice though, Jesus says in verse 37, I know that you are offspring of Abraham. I know that. And then in verse 39, he alludes to the fact that they're not. If you were his children, you wouldn't do these things. Well, which one is it? Are they children of Abraham or are they not children of Abraham? Well, both. I hope that helps you. They are literal, physical descendants from Abraham. Jesus affirms that. But they are not spiritual descendants of Abraham, which is clearly seen by their plot against him. Jesus, and we saw this all throughout the gospel, according to John, Jesus is speaking to them about spiritual things, and they're not understanding it. They're looking at the literal, the physical. Remember, Jesus destroyed this temple. They're taking it literally. Jesus is talking about his body. You got to be born again, Nicodemus. Really, I'm climbing back into my mother's womb. Here, you want a drink of water? Yeah, I'll give you, give you a cup. She's like, no, I'm the living water. He's speaking to them spiritually, but they're not getting it. 
You see, being a children of Abraham is meant to demonstrate their relationship with God as children of God. They're saying we're children of God because we have a relationship with Abraham. So the first thing I think we need to look at is how do you become a child of God? How, how do you become is very, very important. Because the reality that each one of us must repent, trust in Christ alone in order to become a child of God in the familial sense, family sense, is, is totally alien to a lot of people today in our culture. People think that just being part of the human race, we are children of God. Well, in a creative sense, yes, but not in a familiar, not in a salvific or not in a saving sense, of being forgiven of our sins and brought into the family of God with its blessings. Jesus is going to make it very clear, children of Abraham, physical descendants who are not part of the family and spiritual descendants of Abraham that are part of the family. Where does that come from? Here's your history lesson. You're welcome. I, some of you may not know Abraham. You're thinking, Abraham, okay, I, I, I don't really know. I know Abraham Lincoln. I heard that guy before, but I don't know. Abraham in the Old Testament, book of Genesis. By the way, we have the whole book we preach through in Genesis on our website. Abraham was a pagan living in idolatry. When he heard the truth, the call of God to leave his idolatry and pagan land and to come and walk with God, God calls him out of that and promptly Abraham believes God, trusts God, and obeys God, and leaves pagan land of Babylon. God then cuts or makes a cut, it's really cut a covenant with Abraham, and it promised him this long line of descendants. Look at the stars. As many as they are, you'll have descendants like the stars in the sky. God promised him in this covenant that he would bless Abraham personally and give his descendants a piece of real estate, the promised land. And he also promised that he would be personally with Abraham and, catch this, Abraham's descendant, singular, will bless the whole world. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. So here's the covenantal promise. There'll be a lineage, there'll be a descendants, there'll be land, and there'll be the Lord himself will come from you. The outward sign of this covenant was circumcision. But was the covenant based on obedience of Abraham, or was it a covenant purely of grace? If you read anything from Genesis, you'll know that Abraham was no perfect dude. Okay? The covenant was unconditional covenant of grace appropriated by faith alone. That's very important, especially for our text. You're going to see why. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, God brings Abraham, he's ready to cut this covenant with him, and he brings him out, he sees the stars in the sky, he said, this is going to happen. In chapter 15, it does. And in verse 6, something very important. It says, Abraham believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. The word counted is used for a um, financial realm. It's counted on your account. So God's faith in God, it's Abraham's faith in God, and God's truth and God's promise and God's word was credited or accounted to him as righteous. Righteous means justified, made right with God, declared not guilty. Okay? Comes from the law courts. So, that's very important. In other words, Abraham was brought into a right relationship, counted as righteous, through faith alone. Next year we're celebrating the 500 year of the Reformation. Very important. Righteousness credited to Abraham by faith. Okay? Now, which tells us very importantly, it's not by works, it's by faith alone. Right? Not by works, by faith alone that we become God's children. I'm going to read for you. This is very important. Okay? Bear with me. Romans 4. Paul. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefathers, according to the flesh, descendants of Abraham? For if Abraham was justified, made right, declared righteous by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, he's quoting Genesis, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but what is due him. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, that would be Abraham and us, his faith is counted as righteousness. Following me? If this blessing then only for the circumcised 
or also for the uncircumcised. It's not whether or not you're circumcised. He's talking about Jews and not Jews. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before. Circumcision hadn't come in yet. He received the sign of the circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose, the purpose was to make him the father, Abraham the father, of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. How? By believing. And to make him the father of the circumcision, who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footstep of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Romans 9, 6. Not all who descendants from Israel belong to Israel, and not all the children of Abraham same thing, not all the children of him because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That means, Romans 9, 8, that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Paul, where did you get that from? Jesus, John 8. Both the Jew and the Gentile are children of God by faith, trusting, believing in God, whether Old Testament or New Covenant. Old covenant, new covenant. It is by faith and faith alone. If you're a Christian here today, your spiritual heritage goes back to Abraham, your father. Your spiritual father. Since faith brings righteousness and salvation, Jesus' opponents by their actions showed that they were not among the believing remnant. Following me? Verse 39. Again, they say, Abraham is our father. Jesus says, if you were Abraham's children, you could say spiritual children, you, wouldn't do, you would be doing the works Abraham did. Why are you not following in his footsteps? Yes, in a physical sense, maybe, but not true sons of Abraham. They're basing their security, their salvation, their sonship, their hopes, and entrance into the kingdom simply by being Abraham's offspring. But they reject Christ. They reject his word. They reject the truth of which would set them free. They, don't, they, they obviously don't want to be free. And they remain in bondage outside of the family of God. That's what Jesus is saying to these Jewish folks. When God spoke to Abraham, he believed and he obeyed. Jesus, the invisible made visible, speaks and they disbelieve and refuse to obey. They're still in bondage. Can I point something out to you? John 8. We're going to talk about this in a minute also. I just, I, I just want to point this out. I didn't do it earlier. I want to do it because it's important. Look at verse 34. Let me give you a heads up. A lot of people take some of this text and they use it as anti-Semitic language against the Jewish people. They've done it for centuries. That is not true. That is not what's happening here, and I'll show you why. Number one, verse 34. Truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. See that one? Underline everyone. That's you. That's just not the Jewish people. He's not just saying, you know what, you Jewish people have a separate kind of sin, people group that you guys are slaves to sin. That's not what he's saying. Everyone who's not set free by the Son is in slavery to sin. You see that? Okay. How do you come into relationship? Be set free through faith. God's grace in Abraham's life produced acts of obedience. It wasn't the other way around. He believed God. It was credit to his righteousness, and he obeyed. Abraham was a man of extraordinary faith. And Jesus is saying to these folks, listen, if you had faith in God, you'd do the things that Abraham did, but you're not. Galatians 3, Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham, as the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, that's you and I, if you're not Jewish, by faith. God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, Galatians 3, 9, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. He trusted God. He had faith in God. His faith and his trust in God responded in obedience to God. And Jesus turns to this crowd and says, you're in slavery to sin. You won't hear my word. You won't obey my word. You won't hear what I have to say. You're in slavery. Don't count on your descendant. 
He's not going to help you because he was a man of faith and you have no faith. Verse 40. Now, not only are you not doing what Abraham does, look at verse 40. Now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. Genesis 26 says, oh, Abraham, God's talking about Abraham. He obeyed my voice, kept my charge, kept my commandments. What a contrast. You have this murderous people and their objective just to get rid of Jesus and this, 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 diamet- this, this diabolically opposed from all that Abraham did. The, the, the contrast couldn't be any more clear. And this proves that they are not his children because of what they want to do. You guys could open up some windows if it gets warm. Um, so they refused to hear the voice of God. Look at verse 41. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, I, I, I love the way these people just pull stuff out of, their, uh, out of the rabbit out of the hat. They said to him, oh yeah? You want to get into this argument about who's doing what? You know what? We weren't born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. I mean, just the, the ugly face of doctrinal purity, this moral rightness, right? This, this moral rightness, this self-justification. We're not born of sexual immorality. We heard about you, Jesus. We heard about you. We don't, who's your real father? You know, we're on the subjects of fathers, and uh, do you really know who he is? Wasn't it your mom who was pregnant before she was married? Wasn't it your mom who's claiming to be the, of this virgin birth? We're not bastards like you. Tough language, I know, but that's what they meant. They, they were standing on their moral purity, and they are much better than he is because we know who our father, our natural father is. No one knows who yours is. That's exactly what they're saying. They're, they're, they're enjoying pointing out what they wrongly assumed, that he was an illegitimate child of Mary. Maybe Joseph, maybe not Joseph. Look, Jesus, you're illegitimate. We don't need you. We have our moral superiority. And look, not only their moral superiority, they got their religion. They got their doctrine. We have one father. We don't even know who your natural father is. You want to talk about spiritual father? We have one father, even God. You, you, could, just, you could see it dripping with sarcasm. And all they have to do is quote maybe Exodus 4. Thus says the Lord, Israel, my son, my firstborn, Jeremiah 31, 9. I am a father to Israel. I mean, they could quote verses, but they would be misspeaking because, yes, God in the Old Testament is a father to all of Israel, but the Bible tells us that it's those who are circumcised of the heart by faith who are truly children of God. Verse 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, underline this in your Bible, you would love me. For I come from God, I am here. I am not coming of my own accord, but he sent me. Jesus says, you're the ones that are illegitimate. You're the ones that are disobeying. You're the ones that are not listening to the word, to what I have to say. You're illegitimate. But notice what Jesus says. He says, if you were from God, you would love me. He could have said, if you were from God, you would obey me. That would be true, but he doesn't say that here. He says, if you were from God, you would love me. I, I, when I was studying, I'm like, that's, that's very interesting. That's very interesting that people can be following the scriptures. They know their Bibles. They can have this moral purity in giving and tithing, all this stuff, without, though, a deep, profound, overwhelming love of God. It proves that they don't belong to him. That, that should, that's important. You say, why is that so important? I'm glad you asked. We've covered this before. I want to do it again. Religion. Gospel. Religion, if I obey God, if I do what he commands me to do, if I go to church, if I give my money, if I read my Bible, if I pray, God then will love me. God will accept me. He will embrace me and receive me as a child, as his child. That's religion. A heart that is set up for that down the road is God owes me now. You say, well, I, I, I don't, I, it's not that God owes me, really. When you lose something in this earth, when there is something taking away from you, a heart that's built on religion will automatically have a perspective and attitude and think, how could this happen? Why would, do the, why would God do this to me? How does this happen in my life? Look how good I am. 
Look how much I do. That's what the heart is saying on religion. The gospel is God loves and accepts me solely on the basis of grace through the righteous merit and the righteous works of Jesus on the cross. I rightly deserve his wrath. I rightly deserve his judgment, but by grace, he accepts me and loves me and receives me and forgives me because of Jesus. Totally unmerited, completely undeserved. I'm escaping the wrath of God in all eternity because of Jesus' obedience in my place. A heart that built on that premise. When something's taken from you and, and you're hurting and you're broken, you're not really sure what's going on, your heart still will be wrapped around the reality of escaping wrath. The greatest enemy, hell, the greatest enemy. You know that the wrathful judge and this separated relationship you have with him has been replaced by the reconciled work of Christ. All because of the gospel. And what that does is that puts us in a place of moment by moment, minute by minute, day by day, month by month, resting in the grace of God. Because how broken we are without him. This crowd was self-righteous and completely devoid of needing grace because they were relying on their descendant status, their moral and doctrinal purity, and not on Jesus Christ. Verse 43. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. It's not that Jesus was a lousy teacher. It wasn't that Jesus wasn't communicating well. It's because they had hard hearts. They had spiritual deaf ears. Oh, Holy Spirit, come. Let us open our hearts today. Let it open our ears today to hear the words of Jesus this morning. Desires and deception, verse 44. We'll cover these two points rather quickly. Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil. Want to start a fight? That's how you do it. Do you know Jesus? No, you of your father, the devil. That'll get... That'll, That'll get somebody perked up right there. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth. Because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Now, once again, before we comment on that, men and women all over have used this. Let me, let me, let me level the playing field. Jesus speaking to his kindred. He is a Jew. And he's speaking to the Jewish people. And yes, he says you are acting and you are uh, connected to your spiritual father who is the devil. Jesus is saying that to the Jewish people. Let me include us all. 1 John, 1, 1 John 5, 19. We know that we are from God, talking about children of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Field leveled. Ephesians 1, and you, y'all, every one of you, were dead in your sins and trespasses in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's working the sons of disobedience. That's the enemy. 2 Corinthians 4, even if the gospel is veiled to unbelievers, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, in all humanity, the God of this age, small g, the enemy, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Field leveled. Field leveled. Includes all of us. So, yeah, he's talking to the Jewish people, but let's not miss it. He's talking to all of us. And Jesus is making it very clear there are physical descendants of Abraham who have desires, who live in deception, and there are those who are children of God, who have different desires and embrace the truth. Notice what it says. Those are two things, by the way. Uh, desires do the will of the devil, murderous threats, and their character is marked by lies. Desire to do his will, character marked by lies. Two things that, this, that, that, that their desires of the enemy want to do. Now, it says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Why? Because he was a murderer from the beginning. You ever hear that word before, Beginning. In the beginning, God, Genesis 1. It's a reference that goes back to the Garden of Eden. 
Your father, the murderer, the liar, the, Satan himself, the devil, goes back to the Garden of Eden. It was the enemy who lays the trap that helped cause Adam and Eve to sin. And their first parents, which led them to death. Adam and Eve sinned. Death was brought to the world through that sin. Romans 5. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin reigned. Because death spread to all men, because all of us are sinners. Their sin brought death to every one of us. Maybe you never realized this before. Do you realize, though, that, that Satan in the Garden of Eden, the serpent, was not merely trying to deceive our first parents, although he was, wasn't even simply trying to promote rebellion against God, although he did. Jesus is telling us here that Satan's role in the fall, that sneaky, underhanded lie, was premeditated murder. In the beginning, he was a murderer. God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, lots of trees, lots of things to do. Eat from all these trees. One was the tree of life. Just one thing, don't touch. Just one tree, the knowledge of good and evil, the forbidden tree. God warns, don't eat this tree. If you do, you will physically die, you will spiritually die. Eat from the tree of life and live, but don't eat from that one tree. As if the devil had given Adam and Eve poison to drink as a murderer. And they drank. And not only that, not only did he commit murder in the garden with Adam and Eve, but what do we see? Turn the next page, Genesis 4. Cain and Abel, men are killing each other. Right? His brother Abel murdered. Cain rises up and kills Abel. Second chapter. I mean, we're second, right after chapter 3, chapter 4. What these religious leaders are doing, doing the same thing. You're trying to kill me. That's what that's saying. Your father is a murderer. He was a murderer in the beginning, in the fall. He was a murderer in the first children that were born. And you are doing the same thing. He's a chip off the old block. You heard that statement? Like father, like son. Not only is he murdered, Jesus points out, they don't believe truth. They rather believe a lie. D.A. Carson writes, the children of God will so love the truth that they will believe in Jesus. The children of God will so love the truth, they'll believe in Jesus. The children of the devil will be so characterized by lies that they will not be able to accept the truth precisely because it is just that, the truth, end quote. Do you remember Genesis chapter three, the lie? The serpent said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat? Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. That's correct. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Talking about the forbidden tree. That's, that's correct too. And then she says, neither shall you touch it lest you die. That's not true. Serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. There's the lie. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. And you will be like God. You'll know good and evil. You realize that is not just a lie, that's a scoff. That's a mocking that God's commands and all that God has said is absolutely ridiculous and absurd. God did not really say, why would God keep you from something good? Really, maybe you shouldn't listen to him. Dr. Welke, a wonderful Old Testament prop, said this, Satan subverts obedience and distorts perspective by emphasizing God's prohibition. Not his provision. Let's just talk about his, you know, what he don't want you to do. Never mind all that he provided for you. He goes on to say, reducing God's command to a question, doubting his sincerity, defaming his motives, and denying the truthfulness of his threat. The serpent, subtle changes to God, subtle changes to God's words, entirely distort the truth. He writes very, very wisely. He wants God's word to appear harsh and restrictive. That's the lie. You can't really provide. Why are you keeping this from me? You see that? So God's command is unreasonable. It's restrictive. It minimizes him and it minimizes all that God's provide. That's the lie. Maybe some of you bought that lie. Satan lies and tells lies and, and says that God's commands and God's ways and God's wills are bad for us. We're not really in slavery to sin. If you believe that lie, you'll reject the truth of what Christ says. If you believe that lie, you'll reject God's provision. 
The light of life, the bread of life is standing right in front of them. The glorious provision for their sin, for their slavery of sin, the penalty of sin, the power of sin, the final presence of sin is right in front of them. But they want to believe a lie. I hope you're not there this morning. That's Satan's old lie. 2 Corinthians 11, he disguised himself as an angel of light. Jewish leaders were un unarguably marked themselves as children of Satan by their desires and their deception. And finally, divinity and division. Look at that with me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? Jesus like, listen, we're talking about truth. We're talking about lies. You all want to stick to your story that you're descendants of Abraham. Who can convict me of sin? Now, none of us would dare say that, right? We don't want to bring up your friends, your family. Come on up here and just say to my wife, convict me of sin. She'd be like, this morning, what, could we categorize that a little bit of short time? Is it yesterday? Like, when are we talking about, right? It would be very easy to do that. This is talking about the sinlessness of Christ, or what the theologians call the impeccability of Christ, that Christ was sinless. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He, Jesus, who knew no sin, became our sin offering. Hebrews 4, He was tempted in all ways, yet without sin. We couldn't last a minute. Think about this for a minute. In over 30 years, in over 30 years, Jesus never, ever uttered a bad word. (laughs) Never carried out any wrongdoing. His motive was always, always, always pure. Never defiled, never impure. On this Mother's Day, can you imagine? He never, ever dishonored mom. I dishonored my mom. She loves me and forgives me, but I dishonor my mom. Or a stepfather. The Bible says that even Jesus, his own father, verse 8, chapter 8, verse 29, I always do the things that please him. He never lusted. He never had a sinful anger explosion. He never gossiped. He never slandered. He never stole. He never lied. He never coveted. He's the only one who ever loved the Lord thy God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength and loved thy neighbor as himself. Even those who are close to him, James and John, his half-brother, never sinned. Even his mother worshipped him as God. Now, mom, some of you think your children never sin. They're gullible like that, and we love them for that. But it's not true. The perfect, sinless life of Jesus makes him undeniably more holy and worthy of our worship and devotion than anyone who has ever lived. And it also proves, listen to me, it also proves his enemies, his friends, his family, no one can prove that he sinned. Only God is without sin. This reality is that Jesus Christ alone is God and worthy of our worship just by his sinless life. But let me tell you something else. Our redemption Our salvation rests upon Christ's sinless life and substitutionary death, that he can die for our sins because he was perfect. Verse 47 to close. Whoever is of God, hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Whoever is of God, hears the words of God. Whoever is not of God, you know, you you don't hear it, so you're not. So Jesus is saying there's division here. There are those who hear the word of God, those who belong to God, the children of God. The reason that you're not part of that family is because you do not Hear what I'm saying. You do not hear God's word. It's not like listening with the ear. It's hearing by responding and changing. It's by accepting and believing. That's what he's saying. Now, they're still landing on their descendants. We'll see that next week. And having a godly, let me tell you something. Having a godly heritage is of great worth. Some of you come from several generations of Christ followers. But let me tell you, you cannot in any way bring you into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Only God can. Don't be like this crowd and think your physical descendant is your entrance into faith. You too must repent and believe, trust, and yield to Christ. Today we celebrate Mother's Day. We have lots of good moms. We have moms who have prayed for us and loved us. My mom did. Moms who have loved and pointed to you, to Jesus. Man, we're thankful for that. That is just a wonderful gift. But I'm going to tell you something this morning. Jesus gets you into the kingdom. And whether you had a, a godly heritage or not, my... And maybe you did, and that's great. It's a gift. You weren't born into that family. It wasn't like you said to the Lord, all right, I'll take that family, send me down. You didn't do that. It was a gift to God that you brought in that family. Amen? 
But if you have not had a godly heritage, the buck can stop here. That's the good news. The division could end right here. Instead of being children of the enemy, we could now be children of faith, believe in Jesus, and change the directory of our heritage by believing on Christ and trusting in him. We can walk with Christ and have children and teach them about Jesus. Three things, and we'll close with this. Jesus says, listen, they're believers, make believers, and haters. How do you know what category you're in? How do you know whether you are truly his disciple, an authentic disciple, following and abiding in his word? Jesus tells us three things, and we'll cover them, and then we'll close. Number one, here's a test. Right? Remember, redemption, salvation, forgiveness of sin, reconciled relationship with God is by grace alone, through faith alone. It's a gift of God. How do you know whether it's genuine? How do you know whether it's real? How do you know that you're not just making believe? Here's the test. Number one, test of love. You jot that down, test of love. We're gonna talk about it in community groups. Test of love, verse 42. If God were your father, you would love me. This might be the highest test of faith. You know what? Your friends can't answer this for you. Your parents can't answer for you. Your friends can't answer this for you. You must answer this question yourself. Can you honestly say that your love for Christ surpasses the love that you have for all other things, all other people? I'm not talking about perfection. Please don't hear that. But if the foundation of your posture, if, if your position, if your heart's affection is not devotion and worship and treasuring of Christ, you ought to examine your heart to see whether you belong to Jesus or not. Love is a commitment to the highest good of the one whom you love. Love for Christ is a commitment to seek his glory through everything that we do. It involves feelings. Yes, the most joyous times in my life is when I see my Lord is most glorified. Are you committed? Are you, are you love Jesus enough to turn from your sin? Number two, what is your view in response to God's word? All throughout this text, verse 31, if you abide in my word, verse 43, uh, you don't understand what you're saying because you can't bear the word. Verse 47, if you are of God, you hear the words of God, right? We're talking about not just hearing, we're talking about uh, paying attention, resulting in conformity to it. So let me ask you this question. Where does God's word stand in your life this morning? What position does it have in your decision making? How is God's word shaping your life and your worldview? Is God's words preeminent in how you grow in your relationship with him? Again, we're not talking about perfection. Don't put yourself in that box. You know whether or not, whether this word is over you or under you. Whether you stand over it as the authority or this word stands over you as authority. Jesus says true disciples recognize its authority. They love me and they recognize its authority. The psalmist says, your word I've treasured in my heart that may not sin against you. So do you love me? You cling to the word, and number three, obedience. All over this text, desires to kill, to murder, to lie, to reject truth, not my word, don't want nothing to do with you, don't want to believe with you, don't want to do like Abraham who believed and obeyed, I don't want none of that. I, I, I want to kill, I want to murder, I want, I want all this on the side. Makes it very clear. Two wills, two desires. The will to follow Jesus, the will to read his word, the read to believe in him, or to just reject him and not have his word and not love him. Very clear. Ezekiel 36, God promises that when Jesus comes in his new covenant, that he'll change our desires. Now, he's talking about the fulfillment in the new kingdom, but there's a preview, there's a giving of his spirit, and there's a changing of his desires. Listen to the new covenant promise. I will give you a new heart. I will put my spirit within you, God speaking. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. We're not talking about obedience for salvation. We're talking about a new heart when the Holy Spirit comes, changes our desires through the new birth, with a new heart, new desires. We relish his word. We love him. And the reason why we love Jesus, we obey his words, because he implanted in us a desire through the power and the presence of his spirit. It dwells within you. It dwells in you and it opens to us this, this, this treasuring of God's word, this treasuring of Christ himself. That's the test. It's not perfection, please hear that. But it's been no change in your life. Examine yourself, it's important. 
God's grace and mercy and salvation is a free gift. Is a free gift to all those who repent from their sins and trust in him. If you have done that genuinely and you're a disciple of his, you will love him. You will desire him. You will read and love his word. And you will walk imperfectly as it is, but you'll want to do his will. Maybe you've never heard this before. My prayer for you is that you examine your hearts as the, song is, the next song is being played. Don't work toward your salvation, but you can certainly seek the face of Christ and turn to him by faith and believe. And the Bible says he will give you the Holy Spirit. That will change your desires. It would be a cruel trick of God to save you without changing you. That would be a cruel trick. But he doesn't do that. He calls us. He loves us. And he plants in spirit within us so that we love him, follow him, obey him, follow his word, all by grace. Let's pray. Father, this is a, a rather hard saying. Help us to wrap our heads around this. Lord, I pray against anything the enemy would do right now to think that our salvation can be earned by obedience. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, for your glory alone. So God, I would ask that you would please show us your glory. Show us the gift of your son that we would genuinely repent of our sins and turn and receive the gift of salvation through the work of your son, his righteousness, his meritorial act on the cross when he died for our sins and rose from the dead. And Father, I ask you please to pour out your spirit as a gift, your gift to us to empower us to love you, to empower us to love your word, to empower us to walk in obedience to you because of all that you have done already. We don't want to be a religious people. We want to be a gospel people. And out of gratitude and love, we want to worship you and serve you and obey you because of all that you have already done. So Father, that's a tall order, Lord, but I praise God that you can do it. So we ask that as we sing this next song. Lord, Help us to worship you and to praise you.